0: I think it was like first or second year of university and uh, me and a few friends, we didn't have summer jobs lined up. We just kind of wanted to go on an adventure and we heard about this job picking morel mushrooms in the north and we drove 36 hours straight up to Whitehorse. One of our first interactions was with some guy that was like carrying a a bucket in one hand and a shotgun over his shoulder on the other hand. He said, this is my patch, like, you guys better get lost. We were just like running through the forest, picking these mushrooms and filling up her bucket. Chrysler Morales was the highest it's ever been. And so when we first arrived, I think we were getting paid like 12 bucks a pound, which is really unheard of. So we made like 500 bucks in our first day. This was like the best summer job we could have imagined
1: thought that our human take on all the other living things in this world would bring us to guarding a mushroom patch with a shotgun? That is pure anthropomania.
2: I mean, we know that morels are rare and super tasty, but you can get a damn good button or criminy at the grocery store without facing a shotgun.
1: (laughs) Yeah, no kidding. Nash is going to tell us the rest of that morel hunting story in a few minutes. And maybe, I'm hoping anyway, he'll get around to the morel of the story. Ugh, it's begun. I'm going to be doing a lot of those today, Nikki. But of course,
2: morels are not the only mushrooms that end up on high-end restaurant menus. There's truffles and shiitake mushrooms, for example, which you can actually find in Canada. These are shipped across the globe and end up in the delicious dishes of international chefs.
1: And of course, it's not just cuisine either. Those mushrooms that produce hallucinogens, 50 species in all at least, are in the spotlight both for their potential mental health benefits, as well as being pretty good at providing a hallucinatory adventure.
2: Yeah, man. Magic carpet ride. I'd say mushrooms are definitely having a moment. Perhaps, you know, like our backyard chickens, they got a little boost during the pandemic. But I think in general, people enjoy connecting with them as a way of connecting to nature and also as a way of collecting their own food. In fact, I would say fungi in general is having a moment. You know, you only need to look at the Netflix show Fantastic Fungi or bestsellers like Entangled Life.
1: Did you actually say magic carpet ride? I I guess I'm from the 60s now. (laughs) Anyway, we're talking about all fungi, not just mushrooms even though there are like 10,000 varieties of mushrooms. And the mushroom, or what we call the mushroom, is just really the part you see above ground, usually a cap and a stem. They are actually the short-lived reproductive part of the vast fungal living world, most of which is underground.
2: Yeah, and I don't think we can emphasize enough just how vast this kingdom is. It also includes things like molds, you know, that you find on your bread. Also, yeast that you find in your bread.
1: They also have a dark side, of course. Poisonous mushrooms, black mold. And, you know, some scientists are actually concerned these days about a possible future pandemic. Fungi are everywhere, man. Fungus are among us. Oh, God. I have better lines coming up. And they literally are in our guts without fungi, no cheese, no beer, no bread.
2: Right? I'm starting to think it's a fungus world, and we are just
1: living in it. And actually, the cool thing is that we're continually learning new things about it. So if you don't already think the fungal kingdom is amazing, guaranteed, you will by the end of this podcast.
2: That's right. Along with Nash's story, we're also going to get an artist's take on the world of mushrooms, Now, after listening to her describe mushrooms, you will never see them the same way again. Or I should say, you will never smell them the same way again.
1: We're going to start with a recent study that made headlines around the world because it suggested fungi may be able to communicate using words. Researchers connected electrodes to fungi and recorded the rhythmic electrical impulses transmitted across what's called the mycelium. Then they tried to categorize them and figure out how they differed. And before we tell you the results of that study, let's clarify what mycelium actually is. And for that, we're bringing in our first guest, Rob Dunn.
3: I'm Rob Dunn. I'm a professor in the Department of Applied Ecology at North Carolina State University, and I study daily life. And so sometimes that's sourdough bread. Sometimes that's what lives in people's pillows. In other cases, it's backyards, but, but often it's microbial. Mycelium is the network fungi use to take hold of the world. So they can't walk. And instead they use this mycelium to grow, to move. And it's through mycelium that they absorb nutrients. It's that mycelium that connects them to other species. And so very often if you're in a forest and you lift up the leaves from sort of the forest floor, you'll see this kind of white connective tissue. It looks almost as though, you know, the forest has veins. And in, in a very real sense, it does. Those veins are the connective tissues of the fungi that, that weave between leaves, that weave leaves to each other, and that allow fungi to extract nutrients from everything they're in and among.
2: I love that description. Veins. I've been pulling up logs my whole life, and you can see it, this web of mycelium. It kind of looks like that gauze, you know, that you buy at Halloween, that you kind of stretch apart to make spider webs out of. And now I'm feeling bad because I feel like I've been interrupting a lot of important conversations.
1: I guess conversation to me anyway is a stretch. The researchers recorded different patterns of electrical pulses and said they found up to 50 different words that fungi use to communicate. It sounds incredible, and it is.
3: I think the most interesting thing about this study is it asks us to rethink how organisms communicate using sort of the the words that we as humans would use to describe our own communication. We know that fungi communicate with the trees with which they interact. We know that fungi communicate with the ants that grow them and they do so using specific signals. Those signals are word-like. But I think what's even more exciting is if we think about these interactions in this way, that we have to acknowledge that there are these word-like signals being exchanged among species all the time around us and not just fungi. And so ants are exchanging with each other via these word-like signals. Termites are interacting with each other. The bacteria on your body are interacting with each other using these word-like signals. And so I think the broader conclusion that emerges from that study is that if, if we use the metaphor of words and language to think about these signals, that there's this entire universe of communication that, that we're very blind to, that, that's happening all around us, and in some places it's relatively simple, you know, some species use just a few words, and in some species it's very, very complex. And I think it's clear that in fungi, that communication is very, very complex. But I think the the key take-home is that this signaling among species is far more complex and beautiful than we tend to imagine it to be.
1: You know, Nikki, I really love Rob Dunn's comment on this, because I'm pretty sure that fungus experts called mycologists are kind of skeptical about this idea that they might have a language with even words in it, and yet he's not... Just saying, oh, you know, I don't believe it or anything. He's cautious. But what he's saying is we learned something even from this, that probably fungi communicate in ways that we are totally unaware of. And this is a step toward opening our minds toward that.
2: I completely agree with that approach as well. And I think we're going to find it's not just fungi, but there's probably all sorts of communication happening around us that we're not aware of because we don't look for it.
1: Pushing back the boundaries of anthropomania is one way of looking at it. (laughs) Yes, exactly.
2: You know, Rob is definitely someone who wants to know what's going on around us and even on us. For example, his lab runs this wild sourdough project and he has the public, like you and I, collect microbes from their home in the form of a sourdough starter and they make bread from it and you know, he tests this bread for science. He's also really interested in getting to know the microbes on our body. So for example, he's had citizen science projects where you sample your navel and your armpit, you know, all the nice, dark, sweaty parts of the body. And he looks at what microbes are living there. And you know, with the armpits, even what those microbes can tell us about how we communicate with each other.
1: You know, he's kind of a scientist of everyday life and he wants to figure out exactly how much fungus, how many fungi we breathe in daily. So he actually got people to take samples of the dust in their homes.
3: We did a study that was sort of like CSI bedroom dust, where we would take dust and we could make copies of the DNA that was in the dust. And that's either DNA that's out on its own, you know, the cell that contained it broke open when it died, or it's DNA that's in the leg of a cricket or a little piece of plants. And so we, we break that all up, we make lots of copies of the DNA, and then we can decode who is present in your house as a function of what DNA is there. When we did that, we found many kinds of bacteria, we found evidence of many kinds of plants. You know, if you smoke weed in your house, we know based on the dust. But then we went to look at the fungi. and. For the most part, when people think about fungi in homes, they think about sort of eight or 10 most common species. And for all we knew, that's what we would find. But what we actually found was about 40,000 species. Some of those are just drifting through, but even then we're, we're, we're connected with those species. When we inhale, they're coming into our lungs. When we exhale, we breathe them back out. And so it's this whole invisible world floating around us. And I think for me, one of the most remarkable things about those 40,000 species is that that's more species than there are named fungal species in the United States. It also speaks to how unknown this fungal world is. But, you know, when you're inhaling, not only are you
1: inhaling fungi, you're un- inhaling unnamed fungi. So to be clear, most of the time it's pretty benign to inhale some fungi, even though the estimates are we all breathe in about a thousand different spores every day. And remember, each spore could potentially grow into a fungus. But most of the time, it's fine. We breathe them out like he said. Sometimes, though, it could be risky if it's something like black mold,
2: you absolutely do not want that. But I think the key here is that there are definitely many, many fungus among us. Another person who found bungee where she didn't expect them is Diane Borsato. She's an artist and a addict, and she has a book coming out in fall 2022 called Mushrooming. It's gorgeous. It's about her many years foraging for mushrooms and her research on more than 100 mushroom species.
4: You know... Mushrooms are tricksters. They surprise me all the time. I was trying to buy a house in Toronto a few years ago, looking at houses I could afford, and I found a whole bunch of um, domestic cups, they're called, growing out of the tiles uh, in someone's basement. <laughs> Definitely freaked out the realtor because I was so excited.
2: <laughs> okay, yeah, this is what Rob was talking about. Bungie are everywhere. That mushroom that Diane found was Piziza domiciliana, which is a fungus that grows on rotten wood and drywall, plasterboard, damp cellars and basements. It's a flat, brownish mushroom with edges that sort of curl up. Probably not a good sign for the quality of the house.
1: Oh, you're forgetting something, Nikki. The Toronto real estate market. Are you kidding? A few mushrooms in the you know on the bathroom floor in the basement? I'm going to offer over-asking for something like that, man. <laughs> it's actually a bonus
2: because you can eat that bungee when you're house poor.
1: And you will be if you're in the Toronto real estate market. Anyway, <laughs> bathrooms are not usually where Diane finds mushrooms. She likes to speak of the quiet hunt, moving through the forest slowly with an eye out for mushrooms that hidden world, or largely hidden, weird and wonderful, colorful forms. It's a kind of biological treasure hunt. Have you ever been on a quiet hunt or a foray as it's known, Nikki?
2: You know what this reminds me of is going on the Labrador Tea Trail with my parents at this campground we always used to go to when I was young. And now that I think about it, we tended to do this walk, I think, when we were getting a little rangy as kids, And we'd go on this quiet walk in this damp forest, and we'd see, you know, the cute little toadstool mushrooms, the red with the white polka dots. And it seemed to bring everything down in the best kind of way. And that's a really like powerful memory for me.
1: Doing the quiet hunt 350 million years ago would have been a little different because trees weren't so big then, but there were mushrooms eight meters tall. And three meters across. And they were first discovered by Canadian geologist John William Dawson in 1859. Although I have to say, some scientists are still having trouble believing these monsters could have been mushrooms.
2: That sounds pretty intense, actually, and might tap a bit into people's fear because, like, I'm super interested in going on these forays, and I think it's a really great way to connect with nature but I'm a little bit freaked out that I'm going to pick the wrong mushroom and eat it and poison myself.
4: Of course, I mean, you have to be afraid. Well, not afraid, but very, very cautious. You know, I, I love food and I started, you know, my interest in mushrooms was around, oh, collecting chanterelles and, you know, morels. And, but you realize really quickly that you can't just learn about the, the couple of delicious ones. You need to learn about the deadly ones take your time, study the field guides, and crucially, meet other mushroomers with more experience. I mean, the one thing that's good is you can touch deadly mushrooms. That's not dangerous to handle deadly mushrooms. People ask me that all the time. You should be much more afraid of plants. (laughs) There are many more plants that uh, if you touch them, they can burn your skin and things like that. So it's important to know in the woods what's safe to touch. But in terms of mushrooms, as long as you don't eat the wrong one, you'll be fine. And it is important, I think, to be humble about it.
1: She's right. You know, touching poison ivy is way more hazardous than picking up a poisonous mushroom. I've done that lots. But eating it is a different story. You know, there is a saying, all mushrooms are edible once.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Okay, but not everything looks exactly like a perfect little mushroom, right? With a cap on top and a stem. I mean, some popular mushrooms like truffles, for example, make you wonder how people ever found them or found out that they were delicious. Like, some of these need animals like pigs and dogs to find them.
4: Black truffles are really very, very special mushrooms. In ancient times, people thought truffles were literally the product of thunderbolts curled by gods. And in some parts of Europe, in the Renaissance, they were served to only the richest people. So they've always been sort of revered as a luxurious, expensive food and as an aphrodisiac. But yet Savarin called them the diamond of the kitchen and suggested that it made, like, men more apt to love and women tenderer, whatever that means. I did have a chance to go to Italy to look for truffles with a tirifolau, a truffle hunter, and his little dog. Uh, which was an amazing experience. These precious dogs that are trained at the truffle dog university, which is a real thing. They said, any species of dog can do this. They just have to have the passion. Some people think that we're so attracted to truffles because they smell so bodily. You know, certainly they're hunted for by dogs and pigs. They have like chemicals in the truffle that resemble the hormones of female pigs and also resemble the hormones that are detectable in the sweat of men's armpits. It reminded me of like raw egg noodles, like raw pasta dough, and also like hazelnuts, but cold, and also semen. <laughs> so funny, when I was writing my book, the editor flagged that I wrote the word semen five times. <laughs> I, was like, I felt a little embarrassed, but it is, it is part of mushrooming that things smell bodily they smell kind of like pee, but good.
2: Okay, so I love that, but I'm also a little worried that I am never going to smell a mushroom the same way again.
1: <laughs> no, no, but that line was the best. Smells like pee, <laughs> Smells like pee but good. <laughs> and, you know, I obviously I'm now totally fascinated by what you just said. But earlier, I just felt... I wanted to go to Truffle Dog University. Why did I waste my time (laughs) doing a degree in a Canadian university when I could have gone to Truffle Dog University? There's still time, Jay. Oh, man, that would be great. Anyway, it's obvious from what Diane said that people go to great lengths to hunt these mushrooms, and consumers pay a lot. I was going to say pay through the nose, which would be appropriate in this case. But while Diane likes the quiet hunt, for others, it's all about the money. In fact, there's giant industry out there, an unregulated industry of mushroom hunting and selling.
2: So now we're circling back to the morel mushroom that Nash Lejeunesse talked about off the top. Morels are incredibly expensive and esteemed mushrooms, and there are some varieties that actually pop up where there was a forest fire. Now, Jay, have you ever tried a morel?
1: I don't remember ever eating one. I was hoping to get some for this episode, but even though it's apparently the season, I couldn't find any. However, I did get some lion's mane mushrooms, cooked them up last night. People can look at in the newsletter, and they were, I don't know, kind of underwhelming. No morels in my life, but boy, Nash had no trouble finding them
2: and no clue what he was getting into when he and his friends first got the idea to try and go make some cash picking morels.
0: I'm Nash, I'm a carpenter, I live in Squamish, BC. I moved here from Victoria where I was going to university and that's about the time that I went morel mushroom picking.
2: So to recap this situation, Nash and his two buddies have driven 36 hours to Whitehorse they are total newbies at this, super green and before they head into the woods, they stop in a little town called Carmax.
0: It's a very small town, so it was very obvious that there was something going on. There was a lot of people, like a huge influx of pickers and buyers there. Everyone was driving around you know with their, their lifted trucks and their like roof racks full of like jerry cans and morel baskets, these like fruit baskets that you use. In CarMax that year there was probably like 500 other pickers at camp and then we were in a huge burn so you know everyone would kind of spread out from the place where you got dropped off. Once we got to camp we had to cross this river and our original idea was to paddle our canoe across but as soon as we got there we realized this river is like pretty wide and it's pretty fast like we would have to be paddling furiously for quite a while to get across. And we also had three people and a dog in one canoe, so it was gonna be pretty tippy. So we just like took the ferry across, and then once we were on the other side, there's pickers everywhere.
2: And that's when they run into the guy holding a basket of morels in one hand and a shotgun in the other. He tells them to get lost, and so they do. And remember, this forest has recently been burned
0: everything's black and then there's like some lime green algae and maybe some grass like sprouting up in in places like in the wet areas and then when you come across like a, a patch of morels it's amazing they kind of like glow in the Sun they're one of the only things in this burnt forest and they're just beautiful the days were really long I remember picking some nights until three in the morning, we would just still be out there because we were still finding mushrooms. We hadn't filled our bags yet. So we're all, all the time just trying to fill our bags and our buckets. So we literally can't carry anymore. It's pretty unregulated. There's just all these buyers set up that are offering cash to pickers. So, I mean, anyone can go out. Anyone can go and pick a bucket of mushrooms and bring it back and get some cash in hand at the end of the day. The buyer that we were selling to was buying around a 1,000 pounds a night. That's roughly $60,000 worth of mushrooms that they were bringing to Whitehorse each day. And they're all competing against one another to buy your mushrooms. They all want to buy your loyalty, essentially. But yeah, it is definitely a cowboy industry. People are walking around with... (laughs) with like guns and you hear stories of people getting robbed, like some of the buyers getting robbed and yeah, mushrooms getting stolen. You're always on on guard, like kind of on edge. We were kind of worried because we had heard rumors of like people getting jacked. So we decided to bury it in the end. We had like a spot like a little bit away from camp under the moss that we just like put our bags of money until we had to leave.
1: I mean, you cannot write this stuff, right? Guns, thieves, burying money in the ground. It's fantastic.
2: It's amazing. And you know, this is just the tip of the iceberg for mushroom hunting. I mean, there are other mushrooms that are worth even more money than this. I believe the cordyceps is the most expensive mushroom in the world. The biggest, most attractive cordyceps can be sold for about $140,000 per kilogram.
1: That's actually incredible. But, you know, if people knew where the cordyceps mushroom came from, they might not be willing to pay the top dollar like that. This is the mushroom that invades the body of an insect host. In Nepal, where they're really popular, fungus infects the ghost moth caterpillar. The mycelium, the network, grows inside the caterpillar and kills it. Then the fungus bursts out of the dead caterpillar's head and sticks straight up. A hint of its uh, popularity is a human food. You can find that in its informal name, Himalayan Viagra. Woo! Yeah, well, you know, not sure whether to believe the, the hype or not. There's only one way to know for sure. Thank you for pointing that out, Nikki. This type of cordyceps is only found in the Himalayas at high altitude, and they come out in the early spring. And... The locals, even school kids, go out and try and pick them, and they're down on their hands and knees. Really hard work, but really big money. So, I guess now I want to ask you: Would you? You asked me about morels. Would you eat cordyceps?
2: I'm not sure. It would really depend on how I'm supposed to ingest them. I think. I mean, if I'm just like sort of crunching them off the end of a caterpillar, but. It's sort of less appealing to me than perhaps a nice tea. But, you know, even if I did want to eat them, they are way out of my price range, kind of like the Matsutake or pine mushroom. Now, this is a mushroom that's absolutely revered in Japan. They can go for as much as $1,800 to $2,400 per kilogram. Having a Matsutake feast in Japan is like the ultimate luxury. Like you want to seal a business deal, you do that over a plate of a Matsutake. Or if you want to give a very impressive wedding gift, you give a Matsutake.
1: You know what, if you're going to celebrate a marriage, surely the Himalayan Viagra would be better.
2: Yeah, right. And if you're curious about their taste and smell, well...
4: To me, it's almost like a flowery soap, the smell. Very, very different from what you might associate with like earthy, dirt-smelling, um, you know, whiter, cremini mushrooms. These are beautiful mushrooms, you know. You might have one and be so lucky. <laughs> you know, I can buy one in Toronto from a local Japanese store uh, once a year, and I'll slice it very thinly and have it with, you know, rice and soy sauce and sesame oil and Japanese ingredients, and it's just like a luxurious delight. You know, there are haiku written about these mushrooms and books written about them, a famous Annette Singh book, uh, The Mushroom at the End of the World. They're the subject of many stories and mythologies and poetry and, you know, certainly recipes and things like that. It's a mushroom that really has captured everyone's imagination.
1: You know, Nikki, we can't talk about mushrooms without talking about the magic kind.
2: I'm pretty keen to dive into this, actually, because magic carpet ride comments aside, I think there is the potential for psilocybin, which is the psychoactive ingredient in mushrooms, to really help a lot of people.
1: That's right. And it actually is about time. While psychedelic therapy goes back pretty far, research on it was halted in the 60s. No scientists could work on it. Nobody could prescribe it. Social and political pressure It was the largely the American, quote-unquote, war on drugs.
2: It's really too bad, right? I think that was a big setback. Though there have been advocates all along that time. Renowned mycologist Paul Stamets wrote the book Psilocybin, Mushrooms of the World, and he's a big advocate of their mind-enhancing effects. And of course, many cultures have used psilocybins for thousands of years. But back to the science, Jay, where are we at with that?
1: So psilocybin treatment is being tested right now, widely, for its effects in so-called microdoses for a variety of mental health issues. And so far, there's promise for depression, anxiety, stress, but it's still very early days. And at this point, we're not really sure how much impact mushrooms might have, but I would say we're much closer to finding out than we were a few years ago. So imagine that too, Nikki. Mental health benefits.
2: You know, I'm excited about that. I've watched some friends struggle, and for me, this is exciting and holds a lot of promise. It does make me wonder, though. So, we have fungi we can use to help our brains, they're on us, they're in us. Do they kind of have a spell cast over us? Like, do they control us in some ways, or do they simply just rule the world? I asked Rob Dunn about this when we were talking about using yeast to brew beer.
3: It depends how you measure success. If you measure it numerically, there are far more yeast cells in a bottle of beer than there are humans on Earth. And so clearly the yeast have won. You know, they manipulated us in such a way as to produce near infinite quantities of their relatives and descendants. And we've, you know, to a great extent in in the modern world, we're actually suffering from some of our relationships with yeast, you know, alcoholism and all of the related health consequences. And so the yeast is in some ways benefited much more than us. And so we, we might retell the whole, whole human story from the yeast perspective. And I think we're very wed to consciousness. So we like to tell the story from the perspective of the individual that was conscious. And so it's our story. But I think there's just as much claim that it, it's their story, that they're in control.
1: Rob's right, I think, Nikki, that they are in control. And I I don't want to be a downer here, but maybe the thing we should also focus on is whether they might get out of control. Because there are scientists who are quite concerned that the next pandemic could just as easily be a fungal pandemic as a viral that we're used to now, or bacterial. And there's already background fungus activity around the world that would suggest that's possible. You know, even like in the US, 75,000 people are hospitalized every year with fungal diseases. And that's not counting the much, much greater numbers who are outpatients with things like athlete's foot or yeast infections. Mm, Good times. Yeah, exactly. And you know, there's this really curious and interesting theory that our body temperature is just a little bit too high for most fungi to be able to flourish. But with climate change, they're going to probably adapt to a warming world. And, you know, the consequence of that might be that they adapt to the warmer human body. There are species of fungi, just like the coronaviruses were and are, just simmering there, waiting for the ideal conditions to break out, especially those harbored by wildlife. So I think it's time we acknowledge what Rob Dunn said, fungi rule the world.
2: You know, Rob is a funny guy. He told me that yeasts are kind of these fat bottom fungi that have trouble getting airborne. So over time, they've evolved with insects to be carried around in flying insect bodies. And so that made me wonder, you know, when I'm having a barbecue, got my beer, and the wasps come flying over to my beer, is that why it's attracted to it? And Rob Dunn said, no, you're attracted to the wasps' beer, or, you know, the yeast's beer. (laughs)
1: So you know, really, that is it. That that's what I've taken away from this episode. That just the activities of daily life, the things that you inhale, the things that you taste, the things that you smell—you know, like um, sweat, semen, anything—they all have a connection to fungi, and. Boy, I I just think if, if this isn't anthropomania, I don't know what is. And, you know, think about what we, the stories we heard. Adventure, danger, art, science, and a funny guy. I hope you noticed. I did not resort to the cheapest fungus joke ever. I said funny guy. (laughs)
2: <laughs> With that, we end our fungus puns. This is the last episode of the season. Thank you so much to today's guests, Rob Dunn, Diane Borsado, and Nash Lejeunesse. Check out our show notes for more information on their work. And as always, please leave us a review if you liked the show.
1: You could also give us your feedback in our listener survey or DM us on social at Anthropomania. We're on them all pretty much. TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. Don't forget to sign up for the newsletter that this time will probably carry a very artistic photo of some lion's mane mushrooms being fried on my stove in a little bit of olive oil. Of course, it has a ton of extra episode content and fun behind-the-scenes stuff of our show as well. You can sign up on the website, anthropomania.com. And thank you all for listening. It's been really fun. And uh, Nikki and I appreciate the fact that you're out there listening to Anthropomania.
2: And hey, if you have any ideas or suggestions for season three, we'd love to hear. Get in touch. Bye. Bye.